Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guest is Laura Safty. Laura is the Chief Operating Officer at Case Text, whose products include the number one rated legal research platform, Compose, the all-in-one research and drafting prep platform, and Parallel Search, the first application of concept-based search for the law. Laura joined Case Text after stints at Simpson, Thatcher, and Bartlett, the Senate Judiciary Committee, and a clerkship in the Southern District of New York. She graduated from Yale Law School, like a number of our guests, where she has joined a number of her classmates in the legal tech startup life. Laura currently sits on the advisory board of One Justice, a California legal aid nonprofit. She provides strategic guidance in the development and implementation of One Justice's innovative programs and in One Justice's growth. Join us as we talk about why she chose a career in law, how she made the jump from big law to the startup world, and all of the exciting things that Case Text is doing. Enjoy. Hi, Laura. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you so much for joining. I've been looking forward to this conversation and all the cool things you've been doing to talk about. Well, thank you. I hope I hope it keeps things interesting and isn't too boring for folks. I think people will love hearing your, your thoughts. So let's start with you're an associate at Simpson Thatcher. Right. After having clerked and working for the Judiciary Committee and then Vice President Biden, Yale Law School. And the phone rings, and it's a friend of yours, Jake Hiller, who has this business he's starting. And you moved to Case Tex and have had great success there. That, it's an interesting move, though, to go from a, what, what, what is a great law firm doing litigation work to a startup. What was it about the vision, the opportunity, your own background that led you to make that jump? Yeah, at the time, I wish that I could say that it was like a super strategic move that I had thought of a lot for many years. But that wasn't really my story. I went to law school because I always kind of had this perspective that government and policy when deployed by, you know, smart, well-meaning people could really impact the world in really positive ways. And I always thought that I would end up in government. And I spent some time there and I went to clerk and to my law firm and I saw that in practice, there were some things about practicing law that surprised me. And one of the biggest surprises was how challenging it was to get just basic information about the law, like what the law is, reading cases, reading statutes, reading the annotations that are important for a lawyer to understand kind of what we were working with and to give proper advice to clients. Uh, I took all that for granted as a law student and young attorney. And then I saw in practice, it was quite different. So when I clerked, you know, I saw litigants in front of me that were at the elite law firms, the sort like Simpson Thatcher that I ended up working for with really smart lawyers who had access to any tool that they wanted because they didn't have a limitation of funds. And then I saw other lawyers who were also really smart and hardworking, but didn't have access to the same tools. And you could see sometimes the difference in the work product because they didn't have access to some of the tools uh, and databases that a lawyer at a Simpson Thatcher would have access to. So that was was pretty surprising for me to see in practice. And then coming into a law firm right after the financial crisis in 2008, I saw that the economics around law firms were actually changing pretty dramatically at the time. So we were getting a lot of pushback from clients on bills. And one of the first line items that really felt the pain, so to speak, was legal research. It's a critical part of practice. It takes a lot of hours. You can't skip that step. You have to really understand what the law is. You have to understand 
what different courts have said on issues that are on point, but clients didn't want to pay for that anymore. And they certainly didn't want to pay for these tools that were extremely expensive. And that was an interesting dynamic. And at the same time, it really wasn't a phone call from Jake, but we'd had many conversations and he was seeing a lot of the same things as he was practicing at Ropes and Gray. And he came from a different perspective than me. He has a background as a developer and was coding since he was young and was really connected to kind of free information movement. It was like an early Wikipedia contributor, you know, a part of the world that I had no really awareness of. And he, his perspective was, you can actually do this quite differently. There were these historic barriers to entry of why there are these two companies that are extremely old, like dating back many, many decades that have kind of this duopoly over this information. But technology can help us break down some of those barriers and we can do it differently. And I thought that was a really compelling message because I've always been very interested in access to justice issues and people don't really talk about access to legal information as being a critical piece of that puzzle, let's say. So initially I just was like, Jake, this is a great idea. You should absolutely leave your firm and do this thing. (laughs) I'll be cheering you on from the sidelines. And over time we talked a lot and I was so interested in his process of raising seed funding and going through the Y Combinator program and gave a lot of both solicited and unsolicited advice. And eventually we both kind of agreed, maybe it just makes sense for me to come on full time and, and help us build this thing. So that's what I did. Well, it's obviously it was a great decision. Was it scary at the time? Because I know a lot of uh, people who are thinking about startups or thinking about leaving their firm and creating their own business or starting, there's an element of jumping into the unknown and there's a fear factor there. How did you deal with that? Obviously, you knew Jake for a long time and this was not just a cold call. Yeah. So there was a lot of baked in trust. And, you know, you can talk another time, you probably have a whole conversation about, you know, how to create a a really productive and positive and long lasting co-founder relationship. I think it's a relationship that's complicated or can be complicated just like any other relationship, but there's so much trust. And I, I knew him and his work ethic and how smart he was and how this idea didn't come on a whim. It had been something he'd been kind of thinking about and working on for some time. The truth is, I, I wish that I could say that I was really thoughtful, had a long pro-cons list and, and took this on really strategically. But honestly, it felt a little bit more like, you know, when I knew that I was going to marry my husband, like this was, <laughs> it just felt right in the moment. It was a bit of a leap of faith. I thought this is a time in my life where I can take risks like this. And if I don't do something like this now, when will I? And there's also a little bit of um, frustration I had working in government where you can see very well-meaning, very hardworking people just hitting wall after wall after wall, and they have limited control over that situation. Whereas with software, it's just, it's like magic to me as a non-technical person where you can build this thing and it can impact millions of people. And that just felt so powerful to a non-technical person like me, just thinking about the possible outcomes and impacts that you could have on the community. So, and not just the lawyers themselves, but the people who they represent. So I just was like, all right, let's do this. Um, and I think that if you're making a choice to become an entrepreneur, you have to have a little bit of the kind of suspending your too much of your critical mind and just believe in the opportunity. That's hard, though, for lawyers, isn't it? Because we're trained to be critical. We're trained, trained to look for all the bad things that can happen. Yeah. I mean, and I've learned this even more kind of through the evolution of the business. I perceive myself to be a realist and I'm always looking at, okay, you know, if this doesn't work out, why? But I'm using that to try to, on the front end, set us up for success rather than saying, no, we shouldn't do this, saying, okay, these are the risks. I acknowledge them. 
what can we do to mitigate those risks and set ourselves up for success? And sometimes it doesn't work and you definitely need to be okay with that. This life is not for everyone. There's, you know, the ups and downs and just doing something new is, is hard. Even if you get all the positive reinforcement from the market that we get. And even when you have all the support of all the kind of mentors and supporters that we have, it's just hard to do something new, but it's also really exciting. I think the rewards are worth it. Your COO and general counsel, right? That's right. So in your COO role, you're training, and maybe I missed something, but Yale Law School, clerking, government work, Simpson Thatcher. Did you learn to be a business person sort of on the job? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Well, on the job and also affirmatively seeking out resources, right? Yale Law School did not teach me how to read a balance statement, right? <laughs> it doesn't teach me the financial side of running a business. And so you need to seek out that information. You need to seek out mentors and people who are willing to support you in this journey. You need to be humble, right? I recognized what I didn't know and tried to seek that information out. I also made mistakes, right? As as we all do, but definitely when you're doing something new, you make mistakes and you try to learn from them. But I would say that, you know, if you wait until you know all the things you would need to know and to do a role, it's hard to see yourself growing. And that's one of my favorite things about this experience is that particularly in the early years, but throughout working at K-Stacks, I learn all the time. And that's something that keeps it interesting. It's why being somewhere seven years can be tolerable to a person who just really wants to learn and grow. You just have to make sure you're in a role that allows you that growth. Right. So let's talk a little bit about law school. What caused you to go to law school? What is it about your background that made you want to be a lawyer? I didn't expect that question, but to be honest, so both my parents come from, you know, well, my mom is an immigrant and my dad are, is the son of immigrants. And I have all these stories in my family of people coming to this country with close to nothing and making that into something through exceedingly hard work. And just to think about kind of the trials that my grandparents went through to set my family up to be in a position to have an amazing education, to take advantage of opportunities, to take the kind of risks I'm talking about. You know, when you're coming to America on a ship with nothing and you're selling kind of linens and children's clothes to people along the eastern seaboard and trying to make enough money to start a store and then make enough money to start a second store, you have this sense of responsibility. Um, at least I'm speaking for myself. I, I have the sense of responsibility to, to do something with that opportunity and to you know, pursue the kind of education I was lucky enough to receive. And the reason that I pursued law specifically is kind of what I alluded to before, I always perceived law as just an incredible tool for social good. And maybe that's a bit naive or, or overly positive. And, you know, we've experienced a lot of tumultuous circumstances in this country as of late. I would argue we need more of that attitude rather than less. <laughs> Perhaps. Well, well, I'm not in government now. So, <laughs> you know, there, there, there is a little bit of uh, I'm saying this from the sidelines now, but I still believe that you can do so much with good people trying to solve problems and using policy as, as just one of the tools in that toolbox. And so that was my vision that I would go to school. I actually expected to be in environmental law and to have done a lot of work in that space kind of early on. But then I kind of opened my mind up and I saw kind of the breadth of issues that need attention. And then I asked kind of where I could have my own little impact on the world. And as I mentioned, I didn't anticipate becoming an entrepreneur. I anticipated staying in government, but that was ultimately why I went to law school. I just felt like of all the sets of tools I could develop for myself, law was really powerful and also really diverse in the ways that you could leverage it in your life. One of the, and I may be overstating this, but one of the things I've noticed from doing the podcast is I've talked to a number of folks who went to Yale 
and are now entrepreneurs, really making a difference in the way law is practiced outside of practicing in big law or as solo practitioners. What was it about, or what is it about Yale that sort of creates that atmosphere? Is it just the people it attracts? Is there something unique about the way the business is done at Yale? Am I overstating the premise? No, I don't think you're overstating the premise. I'll just talk from my experience. I will say that Yale Law School is a really special place in that it is not preordained what the correct kind of path is. Of course, there's some like well-worn paths that you kind of know how to go to a big law firm. You know how to clerk. You actually have a really great support system for becoming a legal academic. But it's just a lot of really diverse people with diverse interests. And Yale, I think, really intentionally creates the space to let people explore that and tries to nurture that where possible. Although, to be clear, I did not take business courses, you know, at the business school or prepare in any like really tactical way. But there are definitely friends of mine from the law school who are also entrepreneurs, also in the legal space. And I think there's just this perspective that at Yale Law School, you're not learning the law, you're just learning about how to think. And that's maybe a, you know, a stereotypical way of framing it. But you also have people around you who are doing really interesting things and who open your mind up to different ways of of doing things. So I felt really privileged to be there. I sometimes like to joke that it's kind of like summer camp for adults who really love to read and learn. And that's sometimes what it felt like, you know, and and I got as much out of my relationships there as from, you know, the formal education. I mean, my tax final was essentially like, what do you think the tax code should be? You know, it's just a very different kind of place. It's not only requiring you to learn the law, but learn kind of how you might deploy your opportunities and your skills in, in other ways in the world. That was not my tax final, just so you know. I don't think it was most people. <laughs> I loved it, though. Tax was one of my favorite classes. I actually like tax as well, surprisingly enough. So let's talk a little bit about Case Tax. First, for I think most of our listeners probably know the company and the services you provide, but give us the, uh, let's start with sort of the elevator pitch. What does the company do? What problem is it solving and how is it solving it? Absolutely. So Case Tax makes software that automates some of the most difficult and tedious parts of practicing law. We're most known for our advanced research product. It's legal research. It allows attorneys to search judicial opinions, statutes, regulations, annotated by insights that we've uncovered through machine learning, legal informatics, and also insights from practicing lawyers. The reason that approach really matters is historically, the only way to produce this information was manually, was through thousands of individual humans producing proprietary content that was annotated to the law. And the problem with that approach is it's exceedingly expensive, which makes it increasingly inaccessible. And it also can be error prone and can miss opportunities to find insights that are in the law itself. And so we've built our business on finding scalable ways to create the information you need to understand the law and to practice as a litigator. But the kind of more exciting things are not just, you know, how we're doing legal research better. It's taking that technology to the next level and building out technology that automates other parts of practice that are kind of adjacent to what you would think of as traditional legal research. So and one of our products, Compose, it actually automates some of the most tedious parts of drafting legal briefs for filing in court cases. It turns it into this workflow that saves a huge amount of time and actually just presents you with a menu of options that you can choose from. 
And most excitingly, and a reason that recently we decided to take the plunge again and raise additional capital is a really exciting beta product called WeSearch that applies this basically in-house legal search technology that searches in a totally new and really powerful way, not just to case law, but really to any custom content database, which I can talk about a little bit, but is actually an exceedingly exciting thing happening, not just in legal search, but just in search generally. So there's a lot to unpack there. Let me sort of take them in no particular coherent order. Let's start with WeSearch, which is your newest product or newest concept. It's uh, concept searching, right? Correct. Mm -hmm. What does that mean for the lawyer who's typing something in? So historically, the way you would search is you either use a keyword or Boolean search. What that means is you are totally reliant on the particular ways in which a judge chose to write that sentence. And as we know, judges don't listen to any particular set of rules about how they might draft a sentence. They're humans and they draft them in many different ways. And so that's one of the things that makes legal research historically so challenging is you just have to run search after search after search. And you always hit the like wall of, am I done yet? Have I found it all? Am I missing something? The power in the search technology we developed, the search is called parallel search, which we apply already to case law, statutes and regulations is just write a sentence, write a standard of law in whatever language that you would naturally write it. And what the search technology can do is identify other places in the case law that say the same legal premise, even if they don't use any of the same words. So it's a really powerful new way of searching that kind of disaggregates, like unchains you from the actual language in the case or in the statute and lets you find things that you would have missed before. And so what we search is just starting to do, we were really pushed there by our clients is this search technology is amazing, but I would like to use it not just on case law. Thank you very much. I would like to use it on, you know, a database of document discovery. I'd like to use it on emails. I'd like to use it on our internal law firm knowledge databases. It allows you to just very, very quickly find the thing that you're looking for, even if you don't know where it is, even if you don't know what words are being used. Do you have to train the technology to recognize these concepts? So it's a really good question. There were kind of um, seeds of this technology out in the open source world, and then we had to train it on the law and on legal information. And then there are other ways to train it on like very specific databases. But part of the exciting thing about this technology is it's very flexible and you can kind of just upload a set of documents to it and then just search against them for the thing you're looking for. When you say you train, I'm going back to my involvement with Ross back in the old days, where you train the technology in specific practice areas, if I recall correctly. So we don't need to do that. No. That's one of the really exciting things. It was more training on legal language, generally speaking, so that it would recognize kind of the, let's say, the unique legal meanings of words that might have, you know, one set of more ordinary meanings, but mean something quite different in law. Like strict scrutiny doesn't mean the same thing as the word strict and the word scrutiny. It means something very specific in law, strict scrutiny. And so there was a process of training that I will not get into because that's not my area of expertise. And we should definitely have the people on who did do that training. But I know that it did involve kind of this concept called like, imagine like they're uh, an axis with two vectors, like there's just two different variables that you can consider. But imagine then you turn this graph into something with hundreds of different axes. Like you can't imagine a graph like that, right? There are so many variables involved in that graph over 200 where it can get deeper set of information than you ever could just through traditional kind of machine learning training. And I'm going to stop there because this is definitely not my area, but I know what the output is. The output is 
essentially you can just write a sentence and you get a sentence back from case A, case B, case C that mean the same thing, even if it doesn't share any of the same words. And that experience for our customers has been just like one of like a light bulb going off. Like this is materially different than anything they've ever seen. And so now what we want to do is invest in bringing this search technology to market in more of a product where we make it easy to upload the documents, easy to search, easy to then save and turn it into a workflow. So the the early signs are very, very exciting. And now we want to turn it into something that more people can use. Is the idea to save time, increase quality or both? It's definitely both. Um, and I promise that's not a cop out. It's real. One thing that you can do is just much more quickly find the thing you are already looking for. But I think the real value here is you don't know what you don't know and you don't know what case out of the millions of cases may or may not be relevant because you're sitting and trying to think of what are the 10 or 20 different ways a judge could have worded this particular concept. That fear, I think that's one thing that benefits us as having been started by practicing lawyers. We internalize that fear of, did I miss something? Is something else out there that's relevant that I need to find? And am I going to stay until three in the morning running a million keyword searches and calling the librarian and keeping them up late? Or can I just write what I mean and have the system be intelligent enough or the computer version of intelligent enough to identify what I mean. And that's a huge step forward in search technology, generally speaking, and a huge step forward in how you find legal information. So you're searching the database of cases that are generally available to the public, but you also mentioned the ability to put in specific database of information. I presume you mean briefs or unpublished decisions It's exceedingly flexible. And that's what's really exciting. So right now on our legal research tool, you can use this search technology, parallel search to search cases, statutes, regulations, briefs that are in our database, anything that's there. But the research product, the beta, that's, you know, something that we're investing in now that's we have, I think, quite a few law firms that are involved that are um, really pushing us forward on this and asking for us to expand it quickly is the ability to upload your own databases of content, whether it's think of e-discovery, where you're trying to search a set of emails that were produced in the context of a case. Not everyone is Simpson Thatcher. Some people just need really good search without all the belts and whistles of the most advanced, expensive e-discovery tools. So that's a use case that is really in demand. Another one is internal knowledge management. Law firms that we're working with have literally over a billion documents of knowledge, and then it's useless if you can't find it, right? And so we've heard over and over how frustrating it is to know that there has to be something on point. And why am I starting from scratch when, of course, the firm has done something relevant, but I can't seem to find it because our internal knowledge search is just so poor. This is just an enormously valuable way of finding what you're looking for. And you can just apply it to any document set of, you know, prose content, you know, even if it's OCR, even if it's not written like a case law, it's just exceedingly flexible, which is one of the big appeals that it has. It sounds awesome. Let's talk about Compose for a moment, which is your brief writing aid. Tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. So this is, we do, as you can probably tell, we, we're tech nerds. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a technical person, but everyone really nerds out on product to case decks. And so we, we have a lot of really interesting things in the works and that now people can access. And one of the most exciting products has been Compose where, you know, we first focus on legal research, of course, and then we kind of took a step back a few years back and we asked ourselves the question, you know, why are people doing research? Well, usually it's not 
just for the sake of researching, it's that you either need to advise a client or you need to draft a brief asking a court to do a thing. And that brief writing process is historically extremely bespoke, very time consuming. It takes a lot of lawyering, but it also takes a lot of tasks that are not at all lawyering, like finding the information you need to use as precedent. It takes formatting it. It takes teeing up the really obvious standards of law that you need every time when you're making a certain claim. There's a lot of parts of brief writing that are repetitive and tedious and don't need to be done every time. And so what we did was we used parallel search, the search technology I mentioned, along with legal editors who helped structure some of the key legal issues relevant to a particular brief. And we essentially turned brief writing into almost a choose your own adventure menu where you open it up and say, I want to file a motion for summary judgment on wage and hour claims in federal court or in California or New York, wherever you are. And it propagates a menu that tells you, okay, here are your set of arguments that you could make. It's maybe not every argument in the world you could imagine, but it's any argument that commonly appears in briefs and in case law. And let's say in that particular brief, there's a hundred possible arguments you can make. So you open up an argument and you say, I would like to make this argument. And it gives you an option. Great. Here's the standard of law. I choose it. Here's an argument statement. Here's case law that supports that legal standard in your jurisdiction. And then it sends you to parallel search for yourself to do the research, applying the law to your set of facts. And it's basically kind of hand holding you through the workflow of writing a brief. And what we've heard from clients, at least, is that it makes the brief writing process, like you said, much faster, but also helps you make arguments that you could have missed, helps you find case law that you easily could have missed because you weren't using parallel search. And suddenly you have like an 80% brief after doing a half hour of work, which is just so different from the experience of writing in a very bespoke way. So that sounds fabulous, of course. But as you go to the market, have you encountered barriers, people going... Uh, I write briefs my own way. I don't need a computer writing a brief. Totally. Robot lawyers, grumble, grumble, grumble. Yeah, I mean, we heard that kind of tone much more earlier in the business than we do now. I think over the last 10 years and definitely over the last five years, there's been a huge evolution in how lawyers think about technology and rather than viewing it from fear, viewing it as kind of a necessity for growth. Clients have been pushing this a lot. Clients have an expectation that you're going to do more with less and also that you're going to do the best work. And so the best lawyers want to make sure they have the best tools. For Compose specifically, the challenge isn't so much a fear of a robot lawyer. The challenge is more, this is actually a new way of doing things. And when you see it, it hits you and you're like, this is clearly better. This is just so much better than how I've been doing it. But anytime you're asking someone to change how they do things, even if it ultimately will save them time, it is a barrier. It is like you have to take the time and mental bandwidth to learn a thing, even when it's easy to learn if it's new. And so for research, it's very clear. It's just do research here instead of where you were used to doing research, you know, back when you practiced when you were in law school, because case sex didn't exist back then, let's say. That's a really easy sell. With Compose, you really need to have someone see the product in action to understand it. And so then that's just more of a marketing challenge or, you know, getting some attention to the product challenge. But anyone who sees it really has a a very visceral reaction to the opportunity there. And so that's, that's where we're at on Compose. It's a really, really exciting opportunity, but I think it'll be more of a long-term kind of evolution in how lawyers think about brief drafting. And I think we'll help move the ball there a lot. Last sort of topic on case text, and I want to talk about some of your work on access to justice. But you alluded to this before, you've just raised a new round of financing. Congratulations on that. 
Thank you so much. Where do you see the future of Kstex going? Where does that money get invested? Where are you looking to grow? I assume it's Compose and, and research. but what's your plan for the next year or two? So for the next year or two, you know, we raised this money for a few reasons. The first is just to invest more deeply in product. Like I mentioned, I think WeSearch is in a beta right now and it is a really exciting technology. We need to build out all the capabilities, build out the infrastructure. So this can be a place where all law firms are searching all of their internal documents are searching, you know, key discovery databases and things like that. And so that, that will take some work to get there. So that will be our primary product focus over the next year or so. Secondarily, we definitely want to invest in awareness. You had mentioned at the beginning, everyone probably has heard of KSEX. The interesting thing is we've grown to where we are now based in very large part on word of mouth. We've indexed really heavily in the whole you know, history of the business on investing in product and engineering and design, which I think is the right move. But ultimately, it means that we haven't invested so much in marketing. And so people don't necessarily know what KSEX is and how KSEX can help support you as an attorney and your practice. And so that is one area that we really do want to invest in to make sure that a larger percentage of the market knows who KSEX is and is in a position to you know, consider whether it's a good fit for them. And then I would say kind of unofficially, my third goal with raising this money is kind of to build the company out for long-term sustainability. We've had to do many things the very startup-y way. You know, lots of people wearing many hats, stretched very thin, kind of just making things happen no matter what. And we want to shore up our team kind of across the board to build for kind of long-term sustainable growth. So customers can rely on us being here for decades to come. You know, whenever a customer works with a new company, they're always kind of sussing out, are they the real deal? Are they going to be here? Or are they just going to kind of disappear like many other startups do? And in the very early days of KSEX, we had to find other ways to kind of assure people, no, we're the real deal. We're going to hang around. We're going to be here for you. And part of what I want to do with these funds is really invest in the kind of long-term sustainability of the business. And, you know, so that I, I and others can sleep every once in a while as well. Well, sleep is overrated. Fair enough. (laughs) That's an interesting leap, though. Back when I practiced, I represented a lot of startups that were making or trying to make the transition to sustainable long-term companies. And many made it and some didn't. But that's a great goal and it's an interesting challenge, your, your next business education. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and one thing we're very, very aware of is we're not overnight going to become just this big company, right? There's some very important things of what makes KSTEXT work, like how connected we are to our customers. We are obsessive about knowing our customers. We are sharing every bit of feedback with the entire company. We are sharing what people like, what people don't like. We're being honest about it. We're talking with our customers constantly. And so we're not going to lose that connection, thing one. And thing two, we're not going to lose the drive that I think drives some of the really, really creative inventions that come out of our business. So the goal is not at all process or bureaucracy. It's just better resourced uh, departments so that we can keep growing. Let's morph a little bit the conversation. Uh, you're a chair of the advisory board of One Justice, which is a California-based support organization for the legal aid function. And you've used case text to support lawyers doing emergency legal aid work. So you clearly have a passion for some of the challenges involved in the access to justice space. Talk a little bit about sort of the work you've done there and where that, I assume that passion comes from what you described, but was leading you to law school, some of the feeling of a desire to give back. Yes, that's right. And and just the sense that the system 
tends to work much better for people when they have legal representation. And the vast majority of people who interact with the civil justice system, unfortunately, do not. And we don't have the resources to do that. So we need to find some really, I think, creative ways to up-level the entire system because we're just not going to have millions and millions of legal aid lawyers to individually support all of the need that's out there. So one of the reasons I love working with One Justice and thinking about legal aid and access to justice through a technology lens is trying to find scalable ways of addressing really concrete problems. Not to disaggregate it from the individuals who are impacted, which is critical, but I just don't think that the long-term solution will only be about one-on-one legal representation. It'll be about up-leveling the entire system. So One Justice is very much that organization that looks at the whole civil legal ed and legal aid environment and asks, what do the practitioners need to support them? What kind of resources can we invest in to help everyone in the legal aid community rather than just a single client? Can we look at the processes and the steps involved in kind of the legal clinics that we set up and make sure that they're serving the most people, that they're serving them in the most effective ways. And I think bringing that kind of systems analysis to legal aid is really powerful. And I just love the work of One Justice, the people who work there, and and I've been loving doing kind of little things here and there to help support them. Give us an example or two of some of the successes you've had with One Justice. Yeah. So One Justice, I think one of the important roles it plays is relating to funding, is just constantly being a vigilant supporter of legal aid funding. And, you know, I'm I'm not going to take any credit for this, of course, but making sure that legal aid funding continues to increase, particularly in California, as it has been in recent years, which is very exciting. I'm also involved in the Legal Services Corporation federally, which is the biggest federal, you know, legal aid funder. But more tactically in One Justice, One Justice is actually most known in California for this program called the Justice Bus, where it would organize attorneys. And this is a more direct aid example. It would organize attorneys to go from the big cities on a bus to more rural areas and provide support for, you know, criminal record expungements, uh, immigration needs and things like that. And in doing that work, it was able to see on the ground kind of what was going on with some of the more local legal aid organizations. And we looked Again, I, I, I'm not on their staff and, and not responsible for it, kind of the day-to-day work. They, that's the wonderful people on their staff. But we did have the opportunity to look at kind of the pipeline metrics, so to speak, of some of the legal aid programs and identify, that's interesting. Okay, so we have this many lawyers going and they're taking this many hours and they're driving this far. And this is how many people they are able to serve. And what does service really mean? What are the steps in the pipeline, so to speak, of getting the outcome that these individuals need? Okay, well, they need to speak with a legal aid attorney or with a volunteer. Great. Did they actually fill out the form they need to file to apply for an expungement? Okay, good. They did that. Well, how many actually were submitted? Oh, those weren't submitted. Why weren't they not submitted? Did they not have a car to get them to the office? Would they only have transportation to the office when the office was closed? And some of those kind of really in the weeds questions actually end up really dramatically affecting the outcomes for those individual people. So then you start changing the program. Okay, well, if we're going to have a legal aid clinic, we're going to need to bring in transportation or we're going to need to arrange for someone to take all the forms to the office at the proper time. It's not the sexy thing, so to speak. But it's where the rubber really meets the road and getting people the support they need. So I'm I'm proud of bringing kind of like the more business side experience over to legal aid, you know, where where it's applicable. You mentioned that's not the sexy part of it. And I, I would agree with that. But that process analytics, that sort of getting very granular about what are the barriers, how do we overcome them, is really key to 
applying innovative ideas or achieving different results. If you, if you don't do that work, everything else is a Band-Aid. Right. That's why I like focusing on kind of the operational elements of legal aid, because it's very easy to say in general, we support this or we should fund this. But what this is and how you use those dollars to impact the most people in the most powerful ways, you know, you can do it in a myriad of ways. There's a another startup that a friend of mine started that supports pro bono Paladin. Paladin supports pro bono activities for in-house lawyers and law firms. And they are very much took the approach of how do we make the process of getting lawyers involved in pro bono work really simple, take out the friction and just get the lawyers to the need as efficiently as possible. And I think more investments in that way will make a big impact. Well, you're clearly making a big impact. Laura, we're out of time. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed the conversation today, the cool stuff you're doing at Case Techs, the amazing work you're doing in the A to J space. Congratulations. And it's been a delight chatting with you. You too. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.